And we are now in our sixth sermon in the book of Nehemiah. And Lord willing, my plan is not to have one sermon in every chapter in Nehemiah. It depends on the chapter. But recently, that's what we've been doing. We're now in the sixth sermon, and this is just Nehemiah chapter 5. And I think we will be in the book of Nehemiah through the end of October, just so you know where we're headed. Lord willing, probably through the end of October. Well, last Sunday in Nehemiah chapter 4, we saw the antidote for spiritual attacks and fear. So I don't know if you felt any spiritual attacks this week. We don't always feel them. Sometimes they, they just hit us uh, when, when out of the blue. Uh, we realize afterwards that we were spiritually attacked when we gave in to sin, for example. But last week, we looked at the antidote for spiritual attacks and fear. If you have your Bibles open already, you can see this in chapter 4, verse 14. So Nehemiah 4, 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So this brings us to Nehemiah chapter 5 because we saw last week that the antidote for spiritual attacks and fear is to remember the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah did. He encouraged the people. He reminded them who their God is. And then he set them to work. That's one of the things that we saw is that they not only prayed and trusted in God, but then they continued with the work. And they didn't just continue with the work. They also prayed and trusted God. And so we saw how to deal with uh, attacks from the outside. And then today I want us to see how to deal with threats from the inside. There is going to be serious, serious conflict among the people themselves now. John MacArthur uh, calls this in his Nehemiah study guide that we used for our the wall builders. And I borrowed a few months ago. He calls this chapter Walls Between the Wall Builders. And I borrowed his title for today's sermon because I couldn't come up with a better one. Walls Between the Wall Builders. I think that's a great way of explaining this. And here's what he says in that study. He says, the devil will not sit idly by and watch God's people do great works to the glory of God. But attacks do not only come from without, sometimes the enemy also seeks to work mischief from within. Sometimes also, those we're going to see in this illustration I want to give you, sometimes the solution is from within. When we deal with things appropriately among each other, we have the Holy Spirit. He can help us to deal with conflict biblically, and he's told us how to do that in his word. Years ago, there was a large statue of Christ. You might have seen a picture of this. It's just a huge statue. And it was erected high in the Andes Mountains on the border between Argentina and Chile. And it's called Christ of the Andes. Cristo de los Andes. Creo. <laughs> and the statue symbolizes a pledge between the two countries that as long as this statue stands, that there will be peace between Chile and Argentina. Well, right after the statue was erected, though, there was a problem because the people who put it up put Christ facing Argentina and having his back to Chile. So the Chileans were very upset about this because, of, uh, because they, they just saw the back of Christ and he was facing 
Argentina. And so they were, there was a new conflict starting to arise. And then a really wise and witty journalist in Chile wrote an editorial that was spread all over Chile. And he said this. He said, the people of Argentina need more watching over than the Chileans. <laughs> well, unfortunately, in today's passage, that actually calmed all their nerves. In, in today's <laughs> passage, though, the conflict is so serious that a good laugh, some wit, is not going to take care of the problem. And so we need to see these four biblical principles for dealing with conflict from Nehemiah chapter 5. So I want you to see the first one in verses 1 through 5, and that is what we've seen already. Let's go ahead and go to number 1 there. When God's work is happening, the devil will make sure that attacks not only come from without, but also that seeds of division are sown from within. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 5 and see what's happening here in verses 1 through 5. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now I want you to notice, remember, the women in that time did not often have a, a big part in public things or in government, but I want you to notice here this is such a problem that the men and their wives are both uh, talking about this with the, the leaders. Verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." Well, if you were here last week, you are, you are thinking, man, this guy, poor Nehemiah, he just cannot get a break. I mean, we, we have to think about what was literally happening here. Last week, we didn't just see conflict from without. We, we saw in that that there is spiritual conflict behind physical conflict. But I want you to remember that Nehemiah was actually dealing with a physical army who was threatening their very lives and, in fact, threatening and spreading rumors that they were going to be killed. And the people had to not only pray and trust God and continue the work, but they had to continue the work with a trowel, so to speak, in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And so Nehemiah just cannot get a break because First, he's being threatened to be killed. And then now in chapter 5, verse 1, there's major, major problems among the people themselves. Their daughters, some of them, have already gone into slavery. And many of their sons are going to go into slavery next as well. Debt slavery. We'll see that. So there's three groups in these five verses who are having a hard time. You, you need to understand this to understand what's going on. In verse 2, take a look at Nehemiah 5. Verse 2, here we see a group that is probably saying that because of the work on the wall, they were not able to go home and participate in the harvest like they normally would. Many of the harvest, for example, the wheat harvest in Israel, would be around this time. And so the wall was not finished until sometime in August or September around the end of harvest. We know that because it's all dated for us in the book. And it took them two months almost to finish the wall. So during that time, the people were pulled away during the harvest. And some of the families, you notice in verse 2, especially the larger families, are having a really hard time 
feeding their children. Well, there's other factors at play. We'll see that in a few moments. There was a famine that seemed to have happened not long before Nehemiah appeared on the scene, maybe the year before. But anyway, it's really difficult for them. There's not enough food. And it seems that the wall building has created an additional problem for them. Well, look at verse 3. We see a second group who are complaining and who have a major problem. These are the landowners. And their problem is that there was this famine not too long before the wall project began. And because of the famine, there's not enough grain. So they had to mortgage their fields to buy enough food. But I want you to notice that's not so much the problem that Nehemiah is dealing with. Look at verse 1. The problem that we'll see in a few moments, verse 1 mentions it, is that it was their Jewish brothers who had done this against them. And we'll look into this more as we go through Nehemiah 5, but the problem was not so much that they had borrowed money. The problem was their Jewish brothers were exacting this exorbitant interest on them. When God's law said if Jewish brothers borrowed money from each other, especially because of an economic crisis, then it's supposed to be a gift until that person can pay it back. There was supposed to be no interest among Israelites. So that was a problem. Now take a look at verses 4 to 5. Here we have families who were forced into debt slavery. So think about some of the conflicts that we might deal with uh, within ourselves as a, as a church, as a body of Christ. The, the, our conflicts don't even compare to what these people are having to deal with. They're having to sell their children into slavery to be able to survive. Now, it's very different slavery than American slavery was. This is debt slavery, and they're having to go into it, you could say, voluntarily. There's no other action for them, we would assume, to get to the point of actually selling their children. The problem was God's law in Leviticus required that debt slaves be released every seven years. So even if you didn't completely pay that debt off, because God had concern for the people, he said that even if somebody has to be sold as a, as a slave to pay off their debt, after seven years, they have to be set free. And we find out later in Nehemiah chapter 10, it seems like the people were not even doing that because they're called to come back to that. So I want you to notice there's these major conflicts. These three groups have major problems going on among the people right when the wall building is really getting going. Notice they're just a little over halfway. We saw that in chapter four. Well, this coming March will be 12 years in full-time pastoral ministry for me, not to mention five years in seminary, serving in ministry and volunteering during that time as well. And the longer I serve in ministry, let me tell you, there is one thing that I long for that I just didn't care about as much when I was younger. And that is one of the things that I most look forward to about heaven is the absence of conflict. And here's what I mean by that. Just think about how we live in an atmosphere of conflict in our fallen world. We just do. It's, it's, we're so used to it that we don't even notice it. Think about how your life would change if conflict was just gone in all of these areas, in your marriage, within political parties in our government, with your neighbor with your employer, with your children, with your friends, with your in-laws. Anyone? <laughs> okay, maybe I should <laughs> just keep it quiet. Within, your, within the church. So think about all these areas of conflict and how it affects your life. But I think, though, wouldn't it 
in one sense, don't we kind of expect it to come from from the world? If it's because we're believers and because we're living for Christ, we, we kind of expect it from the world. But I think it's harder when it comes from other believers, especially within the church, because the conflict distracts us from our mission. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said this because he didn't want them to be distracted from the mission by their conflicts within. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Paul is upset that the Corinthians have these quarrels among them. And he says, look, it's not supposed to be this way. You are united as God's people. So act united as God's people. Work it out. That's what Paul tells them to do because one of Satan's tactics, the Bible says that we're not uh, unaware of his tactics, yet too often we are. And so the word tells us what his tactics are. And we see one of his main tactics here, which is to cause conflict within when the gospel is spreading to get the focus off the mission, off of making disciples, off of making followers of Jesus and onto fighting with each other. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus talked about this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Different situation, but same principle. Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Abraham Lincoln made a famous speech. I didn't realize this speech was before he was president, but it, it is. I looked it up. He made a famous speech referencing slavery in the U.S. in which Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus here, applying it to our nation. And he said, a house divided against itself will not stand. Every coach knows this. False sports are ramping up and, and really going into full swing here. And every coach knows that if a team is not united, they will not win. You can, you can not have a star player on your team. You can have a little above average players, but if they all work together seamlessly, you can win a state championship. I don't care if Tom Brady is back, which he is. He didn't retire, if you didn't know that. If the Patriots don't work as a team, they will not go to the Super Bowl. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to work together as a team. And so when God's work is happening, the devil will make sure that attacks not only come from without, but also that seeds of division are sown from within. And we see that happening with the people here. Why did these things not come up before? I think it's because the work is happening now. So now the spiritual attack is on. Number two. Take a look at verses 6 to 11. Resolving conflict starts small and goes bigger as needed. Take a look at what Nehemiah does. What does he do when this conflict uh, comes to, to him? Verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Remember, there is such a thing as anger that is without sin. When it's against God's uh, when it's anger against something that's happening to God's kingdom and not against something that happens to my kingdom, then it might be righteous anger. We don't have it very often, but it seems that Nehemiah may have had righteous anger here. But what does he do? Verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. 
I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. I want you to notice, what did Nehemiah do when this conflict came to him? He stopped the work to deal with the people problems. This wall was everything to him. He had left his palace to come and build this wall. He had risked his job. We saw in Nehemiah chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, that he might have risked his life to make this kind of request to the king. He knew that the Messiah was going to come back to Jerusalem. He was trusting in God's promises that the nation had to be rejuvenated for the Messiah to be able to come. And yet he stopped the work to deal with the people problems. The wall was for the people, not the people for the walls. Well, the nobles and the officials, remember, though, are the Jewish brothers mentioned in verse 1. And like I said, God's law regulated loans, and in particular, Jewish people were allowed to charge interest on a loan to a Gentile. So it wasn't that God said that you could never give out a loan and profit from it, but he said that, remember, this was not only God's people, this was a nation as well. And one of the rules of God's nation is that when they loaned to fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, they were not to be taking any interest he made that really clear, and especially the context is not taking advantage of a bad situation. You know, business is business. I don't care if you have to sell your kids. That's what's going on here, and, and Nehemiah knew that that was completely against God's heart. And then notice, though, how Nehemiah handles it. He not only stops the work, but I think what's going on here first in verse beginning of verse 7 is he confronts the nobles and the officials first directly. Do you see that? He says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them. So this is why I had Matthew chapter 18 read for our scripture reading this morning. You might wonder if we are a church that practices what we would call church discipline from that passage in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaching there. And other passages in the New Testament that talk about church discipline as well. Well, we are. But I want you to notice what Tim read in Matthew 18. You can flip there for a moment if you want or just take a look at it later. I want you to notice that church discipline happens all the time in our church and in other churches as well. But church discipline is not just when you finally get to that horrible step where someone who says they're a believer will not turn back to the Lord, will not repent of something serious in their life that has to be dealt with and the church has to know so they can come alongside them and and try to get them to turn back to the Lord that's what we think of with church discipline notice in Matthew 18 it's when someone is sinned against and they go to their brother or sister it's serious enough that they say look I need to talk to you about this and they give them an opportunity to repent and they get an opportunity to talk about it and to figure out was this really sin and something that really needs to be dealt with. So that's why I say resolving conflict starts small and goes bigger as needed. It's only supposed to start with one-on-one -on -one discussions. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 18, and then it spreads out. And unfortunately, in this situation, in Nehemiah 5, it was a public problem, and either they didn't repent one-on-one, -on -one, or 
My guess is Nehemiah knew it had to be dealt with publicly, even if they showed signs of repentance at that point, because it was so widespread and such a problem at that point, the people had to be united again. So he calls all the people together now. Take a look at the end of verse 7. He says, And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. That word nations means Gentiles. That helps you out a little bit. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, you're not supposed to sell your brothers to start with. You're supposed to buy them back if you can. That's what God's law gave allowance for. And Nehemiah had done that with some of his own money. We find out at the end of the chapter, he's very, very wealthy. He was just dripping with riches. It was a very lucrative job, apparently, to be cupbearer. And one of the things he had done with his own money is he had bought some of these Jewish people back. He's trying to help them as they try to get reestablished as a nation. But these people that he's confronting, these nobles and officials who were doing this, not all of them were. We see that because of uh, some of his interactions with other nobles and officials in Nehemiah. What these nobles and officials are doing is they're actually not only buying their brothers and sisters and charging them this interest, but then they're saying, well, you're not ever going to be able to pay off this interest. So rather than just freeing you seven years from now, I'm going to sell you to a Gentile now. And then Nehemiah has to go, and other uh, believing Jews have to go and buy that person back. Do you see how big this problem has gotten? And Nehemiah confronts them on it in front of everyone. And then in verse 8, into verse 8, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies. So Nehemiah holds this public assembly with all the people who are working on the wall and all the Jews who are in the area, and he accuses the nobles and the officials. And then don't let verse 9 slip past you. I want you to notice what he says in verse 9. His motivation, which we'll come back to at the end, his motivation is saying, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Because he's telling them the way that you're living right now reflects something about God. And it's saying something about God to the nations. It's saying something about God to these people who are trying to attack us. It's saying that we're no different than them, is what he's saying here. But he says it's the fear of God that changes us. And we'll come back to that the very end. We're going to see more about the fear of God in chapter 5. Problem continues, verse 10. Nehemiah says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So Nehemiah basically calls for a year of jubilee. There's the seven years where the debts were, where the, the slaves were supposed to be released, and then there was also the year of jubilee. And every 50 years, all the debts were erased. Everything was reset. And so the people are in this unique, desperate situation, and they need a reset. And he basically calls for a year of jubilee, even though it's not a year of jubilee. 
just as you might have a family meeting, sort of like a family intervention, if there's one child in the family whose behavior is causing so many problems, it can never be dealt with, it can no longer be dealt with individually. Sometimes, although it's rare, God's people have to deal with things in the assembly. This is why I say here, resolving conflicts starts small and goes bigger as needed. And you might think like when uh, Tim Oliver read that scripture passage in Matthew 18, you might think, wow, Pastor Tim, thanks. I needed some encouragement today. And, and that's the scripture passage you pick for our reading. Well, I want you to think about this. God loves you. He loves you so much that he will not stop at any cost to get you back into the family, to get you back. That's the whole point of that. We don't have more time for Matthew 18 today, but you can study it more on your own. Let me know if you have questions. But I will say this before we move on. The most heartbreaking thing about church discipline is that Christ is always ready to forgive. And the reason that that's so heartbreaking is because I have looked in the eyes of a brother and a sister. This has happened multiple times as a pastor and, and begged them to repent. I'm thinking specifically of a couple of situations, both men and women, uh, to repent of adultery. And I've said, look, if you just will turn back to the Lord right now, he will forgive you. Your church will forgive you. This will only go as far as it has to go, as far as it has to be dealt with. Our hearts sometimes are so hard. Christ is ready to forgive. We as his people need to be ready to forgive. But I want you to notice resolving conflicts starts small and goes bigger as needed. Well, you want something a little happier? Take a look at the next one. Number three, resolving conflict is achieved through confession and forgiveness. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, then they said, we will restore these. They repented. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So the nobles and the officials repented. But Nehemiah takes this seriously. They have seriously hurt God's name among the Gentiles, not to mention hurt their brothers and sisters in the faith. And so Nehemiah now calls them to make a public promise that they will do this, that they will return the money that was sinfully charge this interest, that they'll actually even return the interest. And so he makes them swear to the priest. It's like taking an oath. This, it helps us to remember that the nation of Israel was a nation, unlike the churches today. And so in many ways, this would be like swearing to the judge that you are going to do what you've promised. And not only that, but then Nehemiah, does he remind you of some of the prophets who did some crazy things to get the people's attention and to give them a picture <laughs> of what God would do. He shakes out his garment and he says, this is what God will do to you. He will shake you out of his people. That's not a good thing. If you're wondering what's happening there and he warns them, but guess what the people do? There's been confession. There's been forgiveness and the people praise the Lord. 
It's a beautiful thing. Resolving conflict is achieved through confession and forgiveness. So I want to ask you, are there unresolved conflicts in your life or in our church because you have not been willing to confess your own part in sin and give forgiveness where it may be needed? It's an important question as we look at this passage. And I want to remind you as you think about that, that when we take something seriously enough to go to somebody and tell them that they've sinned against us, we need to make sure before we go to that person that it really is sin against God and against that person and not just a personal preference. Sometimes that's what we get bent out of shape about, something that's not biblically defined but personally defined. And what we have to realize at that point is that our standard is, you know, our notice the quotation marks, better than God's standard. We know our standard is not better than God's standard. So if we realize that we're hurt about something and we realize that that's a personally defined hurt and not a biblically sinful hurt, then you just have to let it go. You just have to. But if it is a sin, then we are actually called to go to that person and resolving conflict by achieving confession and forgiveness. I remember my biblical counseling professor sharing a story of a couple that he counseled who said that they had been having huge conflicts in their marriage for years and there was tons of bitterness. This couple had been married for a long time. And one of their first sessions, the wife brought in this big three ring binder notebook and there were pages, you know, stuffed in it on top of the three ring binder and she put it on top of his desk. He said, what's this? She said, read it. So he picked it up and he started to thumb through it. And he realized that for years, possibly decades, she had been writing down everything that her husband had done against her. Every time she was offended, every time she was hurt, every time she was sinned against by her husband. And so he put the notebook down and he looked at her and she said, this is our problem. And he said, yes, this is your problem. And then he spent the next hour talking with them about what is confession and forgiveness. And for her homework, she had to look up, she had to write about the 1 Corinthians 13 verse that says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Confession and forgiveness, it's a beautiful thing when God's people do it. That's how resolving conflict is achieved. Lastly, just for a moment, let's see how our motivation for resolving conflict must be the fear of God. Take a look at verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So what Nehemiah is saying here, we're going to find out more as we go on through Nehemiah. We're going to find out that Nehemiah was actually appointed by King Artaxerxes as the governor. He not only went back and built this wall, but he ended up staying for a 12-year stint and leaving for a while and coming back. So we'll see that later in Nehemiah. 
But what Nehemiah tells us here in verse 14 is that for these 12 years that he was governor for the people, he did not take the food allowance that was legally allowed for him. The people, the governors before him had done this, and it's part of what had pushed the people into the ground as they were already struggling to come back as God's people. And I want you to notice, why would he do this lavish thing, which we're going to find out in the next verses, how much food he gave the people. It seems like it was some of the nobles and the officials and some of the visiting dignitaries from the area and maybe even some of the workers on the wall, at least 150 people, possibly for 12 years, the way that I read it. It's a lot of food. Why did he do this? Take a look at verse 15. This is the key. This is the key to understanding this passage here. Why do we resolve conflict biblically? Why did Nehemiah do it? Take a look at verse 15. He says, because of the fear of God. It's because of the fear of God. The fear of God can be hard to understand, so I'm just going to give you two categories as we wrap up here to help you to think through this. When you read a passage in the Bible about the fear of God, you can usually figure out by its context, which one of these types of fear of God is this passage talking about? Martin Luther helped distinguish between these two different kinds of fear. He called the first one servile fear. This is like the fear, not just of a servant, which we get when we hear servile, but this is the type of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has for his tormentor or the jailer. It's kind of a dreaded anxiety of punishment. And I don't like that picture of a prisoner in a torture chamber. And yet at the same time, we do read many, many different verses that talk about how we need to have a sort of fear of God that's like that fear of punishment, because God is a holy and righteous judge. Hebrews 1031 says, is it a it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this kind of fear, servile fear, should push us to Jesus. As Christians, this is where we know that Jesus died for our sins. This should push us to him to receive his forgiveness, to believe in the gospel. Having this fear of God that says, God could punish me and he will punish me if I don't somehow pay for that sin. And I can't pay for that sin, the Bible tells me. So I'm going to trust in Jesus who alone could pay for that sin. That kind of fear is a good kind of fear because it pushes us to God. This is a fear that has often been removed recently from our society because when people don't know about the Bible, when they're not familiar with what's in the Bible, they don't have the fear of God. That's why we have to start from the beginning sometimes now when we try to share the gospel with somebody to help them understand how big it is that our sin has separated us from God, that we deserve judgment. Well, that's servile fear. But then there's filial fear, as Martin Luther called it. On the other hand, this is the fear of a child for his or her father. Luther was thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father and mother, who dearly wants to please them. And the anxiety is not because of a fear of punishment. The anxiety, uh, the type of fear that we're talking about here is a desire to please that father and mother because you you get your your sense of security you get your sense of love from that person and you don't want to offend them this is the type of family fear and so we see this in the bible and we see that nehemiah had both kinds of healthy fear he feared god 
his fear of God, his servile fear, his fear of punishment pushed him to want to believe in God and to have faith in him as his savior. And then his filial fear of God pushed him to have a right relationship with God by doing what God required. Take a look at verse 16 as we wrap up. Nehemiah says, I also preserved in the, persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So he's saying, not only did I not take this food I could have taken, but I didn't take advantage of the people and get rich with land on top of it because they needed help. And in fact, I sent my servants to, to do the work. Verse 17, moreover, this is amazing, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember, this is like Nehemiah's personal diary here, parts of this, and we get that impression right here. He explains here, he wants us to understand that he's not doing this to, to toot his own horn, but he wants us to understand that he didn't come and do this in the land to earn a buck, like these guys who had just repented. In fact, he's sacrificing his own funds. And we see here that he was actually extremely rich as cupbearer to the king, but he used his own funds to feed all of these people and he didn't oppress the people, and he did this because of what? The fear of God. Because of the fear of God. The fear of God should motivate us to deal with conflicts within the body biblically. It was said when the British and the French were fighting in Canada in the 1750s, there was an admiral named Phipps who was a commander of the British fleet, and he was told to anchor outside of Quebec, and he was given orders to wait for the British land forces to arrive, and then when the land forces arrived, he was supposed to, to support them as they attacked the city. Well, his navy arrived early, and as Phipps the Admiral waited, he became annoyed as he waited day after day. He saw these statues of saints on the cathedral in town, and they bothered him. He didn't like the way they looked. So he commanded his men to shoot at them with the ship's cannons. And nobody knows how many rounds were fired or how many statues were actually knocked out. But when the land forces arrived and the signal was given to attack, the admiral was of no help to the land forces because he had used all of his ammunition shooting at the saints. Let's think about it. Let's make sure as a church that we save our ammunition for the real enemy, the devil, and do not shoot the saints. Let's pray together. God, we need your help. We need your forgiveness.